All right, well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. As we've done the last few weeks, we'll be focusing in today on one specific section of the book, and this will be actually for today and our next sermon. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, one of the things that this means is that we finally come to the most popular verse in the book of Jeremiah. That would be Jeremiah 29, 11. All right, so here, if you're not familiar with that verse, there it is. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Okay, this is a really popular verse. Okay, I did a little searching on Google about this. Okay, this, you can get this verse on all sorts of things. Okay? So I, this is what I found just yesterday. Okay? So you could get you know, from like tote bags, wall art, necklaces, license plates, beach towels. You could even tattoo your arm with this verse. Okay? Now, I love this verse. Okay? And I hope that you do too. Uh, at the same time, I do wonder how many have actually thought through what the verse is saying in its own context. And, and so, for example, have, have you ever looked closely at when God says that verse, or uh, why God says it, or who God says it to? Okay, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Either way, I want to do that together today. But as I've been thinking about this, I do wonder if there might be just a little bit of fear about actually looking closely at the chapter. Why would that be? Because we might think if we really look closely at the verses around this, perhaps there's a danger that we won't be as encouraged by it. Why? Well, for one thing, the people who are told this originally aren't us exactly. And not just that, the people who were told this originally actually had a pretty terrible life. If you, I don't know if you know that or not. But the people who were told that verse had a pretty terrible life. So it's, is it possible that we might not be as encouraged by this verse after studying it? Okay. My answer is I think this could happen at first, at first. But I want to set your heart at ease if you've got this verse painted on your wall or tattooed on your arm. Okay. This verse and these promises are for us, and after studying it, I hope we will actually grow in our love for it and the precious promises it contains. But, but before we start walking through Jeremiah 29, we need to get familiar with the backstory. Okay, now, for, for many of us, we have been in Jeremiah for quite a while now, and even though we might not call ourselves Jeremiah experts, okay, I hope we're more familiar with the book now than we were you know, a couple months ago. For others, perhaps you're new, perhaps this is your first time with us, or maybe you've just been with us a couple weeks and you might not know that much about the book. Okay, that's okay. Either way, it's going to be helpful, specifically with this chapter, to review some of the backstory. Okay, so I want to, to start with, I want to just remind us of things you have to know when you read Jeremiah. Okay, so you've got you to know that by the time Jeremiah was alive in the Old Testament, okay, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, like the ten northern tribes, were long gone. Like, they had been gone for 80 years, okay? Now, that means that he, Jeremiah, served in the south 
in a place called Judah. Okay, and Judah was where Jerusalem was, that's the capital. Judah was where the temple was. And Judah was where the sons of David sat on the throne. Now, something else that you learn if you look at the very first verses of Jeremiah is that Jeremiah himself lived at the very end of that kingdom. Okay, he was actually part of the last generation to live in the land okay, before they were kicked out. Now, I've shared those basic things about the book of Jeremiah a few times in the study. But there's a couple specific things I want to point out before we get into today's text. Okay? And they have to do with this idea that Jeremiah's ministry lasted for 40 years. Okay? After all, things can change a lot in the course of 40 years. Okay? Maybe over half of the people here today have not been alive for 40 years. Okay? I mean, think about it. In early 1983, what was happening in the world? See, I was being born, so I don't even know. But I, but I know this. Things have changed a lot in the U.S. in the last 40 years. And when we read Jeremiah, we can, we can hear all these messages and think they were all happening at the same time. But it's one book with messages from throughout a 40-year time period, and things were constantly changing throughout those for decades. And so when you're reading the book, if at all possible, it is really helpful to know like when Jeremiah preached that and to whom and, and what was going on. And that is especially the case in Jeremiah chapter 29. So to figure out the setting for this chapter, you just have to read the first three verses and then we can think about it. Okay, so look at Jeremiah 29 and we're going to read the first three verses. So it says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiakim, and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisad, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And the letter said, and we're going to stop there for now. Okay, but I wonder, were you able to follow that? Maybe some, maybe, maybe not all of it. Okay, so just notice a couple things. One, this chapter is a letter. So this is one of the few letters in the Old Testament. We think of letters as a New Testament thing. This chapter is a letter from Jeremiah. Okay, if you read the chapter carefully, there's actually three letters mentioned in Jeremiah 29. But the first one is the one we're going to focus on, and it's the long one. Okay, second, notice that Jeremiah is sending the letter from where to where. You follow it? Where is he? He is in Jerusalem still. And he is sending the letter to Babylon. To whom? He's sending the letter to all of the Jewish people that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had already taken captive to Babylon. Okay? And then third, notice the letter is sent. It says, after the king, Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, okay? and his mom had been taken captive, 
And then lastly, did you notice that there is still a king in Judah? Did you see who it was? His name was Zedekiah. He was the last son of David to rule, and he ruled for 11 years. Okay? Now, you might think, wait a second. Does that mean that Babylon took captive a whole bunch of people, including the king, but then left a whole bunch of people and still let them have a king? And yes, that is what they did the first time. Okay? That is what happened. Now, here's where I want to clear up uh, some things about the uh, Babylonian captivity. Okay, so we're going to start by just reviewing a couple events that happened before Jeremiah 29. Just a couple things. Okay? So one, <clears throat> 645 BC. Okay, this is a long time ago. Jeremiah was born, approximately. Okay? 640 BC, a guy named Josiah becomes the king at about eight years of age. So you can tell Jeremiah and Josiah were like contemporaries, okay? And they both were great guys, okay? 626 BC, Jeremiah is called to preach. He's about 18 years old when he's, when he's called to be a prophet. And then 609 BC, Josiah dies unexpectedly in a tragic death that changed the rest of their history and the rest of Jeremiah's life, okay? So that's the kind of stuff that happened before. All right, now shortly after that, okay, so Jeremiah's been around for a long time, ministering for a long time. Okay, shortly after that, here's, here's what happens with Babylon. Okay. So the thing you got to know is that Babylon did not take all of the people all at once out of Jerusalem. Okay, they did not conquer all of Judah all at once. And if you don't grasp that, you'll have a hard time understanding specifically the letter that he sends in Jeremiah 29. So three things, three, three stages happen. The first one I would call like the prequel, okay? 605 BC, Babylon comes in, they take some treasure, and they take a very small group of the elite youth out of Judah. And you can read about that in the very first verses of the book of Daniel. Daniel, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, maybe you've heard these, these people, they're all taken in that first thing, but that was pretty small. It was like the prequel to what they were going to do later. Okay, then, 597 BC, so eight years later, you have like really the stage one of the captivity. Okay, Babylon takes the king, Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, same person, and 10,000 people captive. Okay. And one of those, by the way, was Ezekiel. Okay. Ezekiel would spend his life in Babylon, and he would be called to be a prophet while he was in Babylon. Okay. But that's like the big beginning of the exile, when the king is taken and replaced with another one that would be more favorable to Babylon. Okay. And then, because that king turned out to not be very faithful, 587 BC, stage two, Babylon takes the other king, Zedekiah, and most of the people captive and only leaves a few poor people left in the land. Jerusalem falls, the temple is destroyed, everything is devastated, okay? Now, I'm going to leave that there for right now, and I want you to look back at the verses that we just read. Can you figure out the setting? 
Like when is Jeremiah 29, this letter, being sent? <clears throat> I mean, so look at, the, look at it. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, and the queen mother and all these other people had departed from Jerusalem. And, this, and then you look at verse 3, this was while Zedekiah was still king. So where, you see how, where it happened? It happened after stage one, where the king had been taken and all of these important people. But they still were in the land, a lot of the people. The temple was still standing. There was still a king on the throne. Okay? And Jeremiah writes a letter to the people who are there in Babylon. All right? We got that? We got that? Okay. Now, I want to ask you something. Okay? If you were part of the group that was taken captive to Babylon, like Ezekiel was and thousands of other people, okay, what would you be thinking? What would you be longing for? Okay, think about it. Where would you rather be? <clears throat> there in a foreign land or back in your homeland? I think we would be longing for home. To be back in our land near the temple of God. Okay, especially if we love the Lord. I mean, how could we live? outside the land, cut off from the temple, surrounded by the godless. And after all, isn't being in exile a sign that God has abandoned you and that your life is now basically meaningless? You can imagine how it would be very easy to think that. I wonder if even Jeremiah himself may have thought that about the exiles at first. But then the Lord showed Jeremiah a vision. Do you remember it? I read it earlier from Jeremiah 24. It might make more sense now. Do you remember it? What does Jeremiah see in the vision? What does God show him? What was it? Jeremiah sees right, two baskets of figs. One basket is full of really good figs, and one is full of very bad figs, okay? Do you remember what they stand for? God tells him what they stand for. Do you remember? This is Jeremiah 24, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, these, like these good figs, so I will regard as good which group? The ones in the land or the ones in exile in Babylon? The exiles whom I have sent away. And then God says similarly about the bad figs. The bad figs are King Zedekiah and all the people left in the land, in Jerusalem. Now, you see, if we would have looked at the circumstances, we probably would have thought the opposite was true. God, but God reveals his own view in the vision. He says, I am with the exiles. I am for them. I will plant them. I will build them. And one day I will bring them home. 
Okay, but here's the thing. That vision that we read earlier is given to whom? That is a private vision given to whom? One man, Jeremiah. Okay? And where is he? He's back in Jerusalem. But who are the people who really, really need to hear that? It's the people who are a thousand miles away in Babylon. And so what does Jeremiah do? He writes the letter that is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 29. All right? So what we learn, now let's go to Jeremiah 29. Okay, what we learn as we get into the chapter is that the exiles weren't just sitting around waiting for a letter from Jeremiah. Okay? They didn't know he was going to write them a letter. In fact, before they ever got this letter, they had been getting all kinds of other messages, supposedly from the Lord, about God's plans for them and about what God was going to do for them and about what they were supposed to do. And not surprisingly, the messages they were hearing were exactly the things they wanted to hear. Okay, More on that in a minute. But I'll just say this. Jeremiah's message in this letter is the exact opposite. It is not what they wanted to hear. Because here's his message to all these exiles who've just been taken captive. You know, he says, you will be there a long, long time in Babylon. In fact, most of you will never step foot in your homeland again. Because this exile will last 70 years. But God is with you where you are. And he is for you. He's got his eyes on you. And he knows the plans he has for you. They are to prosper you and not to harm you. Okay? So on the one hand, Jeremiah is saying, God has good plans for you. But on the other hand, God's plans for you and your life are not what you planned for your life. Even though there's a lot of good things in the letter, this was not what most of them would have wanted to hear. And not surprisingly, there were plenty of other prophets who were very willing to tell them exactly what they did want to hear. Because what did they really want to hear? Let's, let's take a look at this, okay? Look at Jeremiah 29, verse 8. So Jeremiah 29, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams they dream. For it is a lie they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now you say, what exactly are these false prophets saying? If you just read the letter... Jeremiah never really says what they're saying. But if you look at the chapters around this, it's really easy to find out what they were saying. And so for just one example, look back one chapter. Jeremiah chapter 28. Okay, maybe you remember from, a, from an earlier sermon that for, during this time, Jeremiah would walk around with a wooden yoke around his shoulders. And he would preach his sermons with a wooden yoke around his shoulders. Do you remember that? Okay. And what would he say? He'd go around saying, God wants us to surrender 
to Babylon. <laughs> this was an incredibly unpopular message. Okay? And so not surprisingly, what do you find in Jeremiah chapter 28? You find other prophets who were very willing to tell the people what they wanted to hear. Okay? So look at Jeremiah 28, verse 1. So this is a chapter early, 28. In the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, that's going to be the false prophet, okay, the son of Azor, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priest and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'll bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar took away. And verse 4, and I'll also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the king, and all the exiles. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Okay, you follow that? This is the kind of message that was floating around at the time. It was exactly what everyone wanted to hear. Within two years, Babylon is going down. Our king's coming home. All of our exiles are coming back. Thus says the Lord. I love Jeremiah's response. I cannot wait to meet this man. Great guy. Okay. Jeremiah 28, verse 5. Because remember, he's got this wooden yoke around his shoulders. He's going around, and this guy preaches, like stops him and preaches this. Okay. Then the pro- this is 28, 5. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah the prophet in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make those words come true. And, and this is very sarcastic. Okay. I can imagine Jeremiah saying that while clapping slowly you know, through the whole thing. Amen. That, that was really good. I like that. Good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. If you remember the story, things escalate very quickly. Within a couple verses, the prophet Hananiah actually goes over to Jeremiah physically takes the yoke off of his shoulders and then starts to smash it in front of the people. And he repeats this thing. Within two years, the king of Babylon's going down. Okay. By the end of the chapter, Jeremiah says, in effect, Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you're a dead man. And look at the last verse of the chapter. Jeremiah 28, verse 17. In that same year, in the seventh month, that is two months later, if you're counting, the prophet Hananiah died. Okay. Now, to be clear, that, this guy was saying that stuff back in Jerusalem. <clears throat> but as you read Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, this was the same message that they were telling the exiles. Like, things like, you know, don't, don't uh, unpack your bags because we're going home soon. Okay. And, and to see that in chapter 29 a little bit, look at chapter 29, verse 20. So go back to chapter 29 and look at verse 20. Here's what happened to people that did that in Babylon. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles. Verse 21, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, this is a prophet, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Yikes. Okay. That's what happened to some of the false prophets in Babylon who went around telling everybody, Nebuchadnezzar's going down. Nebuchadnezzar roasted them in the fire. Okay. My point so far 
is that Jeremiah wasn't the first one to talk to the exiles. There were lots of people telling them what God's plans were for them, what they were supposed to do, what God would do for them. They would say, this is not going to last. Keep your bags packed. We'll all be home soon. Babylon's going down. Lots of people telling them what they wanted to hear. But who would tell them what they needed to hear? And that would be the role of the true prophet. And that is why Jeremiah writes the letter. Okay? What did the people in exile need to hear? Okay, Jeremiah 29. The letter has two messages, two main ones. Okay? One is about the present. It's about what the people are supposed to do while they're there in Babylon, how they're supposed to think about their life in exile, far from home. The next time I preach, I'm gonna, I want to focus on that. But the other message is about the future, and that's what I want to look at for the last couple minutes we have today. Jeremiah 29 verses 8 to 14. This is the message of the letter about the future. So after warning the exiles not to believe that everything's going to get better soon, Jeremiah delivers this word from the Lord about their future. We'll pick up in verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise. And I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back into the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay? That's, what, what is the message? The exile will last a long time. Babylon will reign for 70 years. God wants them to know this. But God also wants them to know he has not forsaken them. He has not forgotten them. He will not forget them. And he certainly has not forgotten his promises. His plans may not be their plans, but his plans are good. They're for their good plans to give them hope and a future. So in context, Jeremiah 29, 11 is God's call to his own suffering people whose lives are actually going to be very hard not to despair and not to lose heart. The exile will be hard. It will last a long time but it will not last forever. One day, God will bring his people home. But all along the way, God will be with them. And God will be for them. Okay. Now, if we step back and we think about this, 
one of the things we'll realize is that God is telling these people that most of them will never step foot in their homeland again. I mean, after all, most of them will be dead by the time the exile's over, right? So this is not an easy message. This is a message that calls for them to look beyond themselves and what they can see, maybe even beyond their own lifetime. This is a message that calls for great faith. And not just that, God is calling them to surrender their plans for their lives to his plan for their life. God is calling them to trust him with their future and the future of their children and the future of their grandchildren. He's calling them to trust him to fulfill his promises, even if on the day they got this letter, it seems impossible that he can keep these promises. God wants them to trust him to keep the promises. Which promises? The promise of a land to live in forever. I mean, that promise seems impossible. To trust him about the promise of a son of David who would rise to rule, that seems impossible. And to trust him that God will actually bless the whole world through them. This weak, vulnerable group of exiles with no power. And this is one of the key ways that Jeremiah 29, 11 still speaks to us today. It is a verse that speaks to us, especially in our suffering. It speaks to us when our lives are not going according to our plans. In fact, it, it speaks to us even if it gets to a point in our life where we realize we're probably going to die before we see the fulfillment of all God's promises. We too can find comfort in these verses, in this verse and its promises, that God knows the plans he has for us, plans to prosper us, not to harm us, plans to give us hope and a future. There may be some differences, of course, in what exactly they were waiting for and what we are waiting for. I mean, they would have been looking for the end of the exile and the return to Jerusalem. We're looking for the end of our exile, which is how the New Testament talks about us. We're looking for the end of our exile and the arrival in the New Jerusalem. But these words still speak to us today, as they did over 2,500 years ago. I think the difference is actually more in that we can see much better now than they ever could have how God planned to keep these promises. They had no idea how God was going to do it. They were just supposed to trust him. We can see more clearly how God planned to keep the promises. Because we know God did raise up one more son of David, as he promised. And we know that the son of David turned out to be the son of God. We know that this son died to bear the sins of his people, 
We know that Jesus was then raised from the dead. And so we can connect the dots and realize that his resurrection is what guarantees the future of Jeremiah 29, 11, the ultimate future, the hope of a new creation and of a new Jerusalem. But even for us, we are still called to trust God to fulfill his promises because we still don't see all of the fulfillment of them even now. We're still in exile, waiting for the final journey home. But the call to trust God with our future is not the only application from the passage. The other application is to seek God with all your heart, wherever you are, right now. Okay, this comes out of 29 verses 12 to 14. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. Now, in context, those verses are, I think, first about the future. Like God is talking about how one day down the road his people will seek him and they will find him. But I think it would be a mistake to think that God didn't want them to seek him now. Or, the, or to think that God wouldn't be found now if they would run after him. I mean, think about it. The people who got the letter and heard verses 12 to 14, what were they supposed to do with that? Should they read it? And then think, wow, that'll be great for a future generation. We should wait to seek the Lord until then. Is that what they were supposed to do? No, they, they should not wait for a future generation to seek the Lord. They should seek him now with all their hearts in exile. And I think this actually kind of blows up some of the Old Testament thinking about the temple and about the access to God being bound to the building. And to the temple, they could seek him now from exile, from wherever they were. And they should do this with the promise of God ringing in their ears. I will be found by you. You see, God is a father who wants to be sought and who loves to be found. And that has been true for every generation. So even now, to us, don't wait to seek the Lord. Call on his name. Come to him. Pray to him. He will listen to you wherever you are. Seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. As the author of Hebrews says, God is a God who rewards those who what? who diligently seek him. God is a God who wants to be sought. And he is a God who loves it when he's found. And he promises us, I will be found if you will look. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, would you take this beautiful text, these precious promises, this invitation, this call to run after you, and would you both give us assurance for the days ahead, and would you stir us, Lord, maybe we've been lazy, content not to run after you, 
with all our hearts. Lord, would you stir us to seek you? And would you encourage us with the promise that you will be found by those who diligently run after you? Lord, thank you for this text. I pray that you will encourage us even in our suffering, even in this time of exile. Would you speak these words afresh to our hearts by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.